one, I'll give you all six up front, and then I'll go through them each step by step. <clears throat> Number one, apostasy comes from people within the community and within the church. Apostasy comes from people within the community and in the church. Number two, apostasy is rationalized as a cover for sin. Apostasy is rationalized as a cover for sin, number two. Number three, apostasy involves capitulation of leadership. Apostasy involves capitulation of leadership. Number four, apostasy involves capitulation of the people at large. Apostasy involves capitulation of the people at large. Number five, apostasy celebrates idolatry. And then finally, apostasy is accompanied by immorality. Apostasy is accompanied by immorality. So those are our six thoughts for tonight. Now, first of all, let's look at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now notice here in this opening verse, this important point. There is no outward pressure being applied to the Israelites to turn away from God. There's no government threatening them with jail or fines or um, death. There, there is no Nero here dragging them off. There is no Nebuchadnezzar saying, bow down to this golden image. Uh, there, there is no external pressure being brought to bear upon the children of Israel. There's no external power, no coercive persecution, no government agency, nobody's boycotting them, nobody's threatening to do away uh, with their business if they do, if they refuse to serve the idol, there is no outward pressure. And so this is my point here, that what we see in this text is the problem of apostasy begins always with ourselves. That is, the sin originates within our own hearts. The people themselves are the ones who called for this idol. They brought this proposal of violating the second commandment. The second commandment, you'll remember, is thou shalt have no graven images, all right? And thou shalt not make any likeness of anything anywhere and bow down and worship it, all right? So this, this desire to create a graven image contrary to the second commandment comes from themselves. Now, they were not, no doubt they would have made the case, we're not arguing, they said, for an abandonment of God himself. We're just asking for a change in the way we worship him. We're just asking you, Aaron, to give us a visual representation of the invisible God. So the significance for us tonight is this, that we have to realize that the danger of apostasy, that is the leaving of God, resides within us. We are justified by grace alone through faith in Christ, and that grace must preserve us and sanctify us. 
Therefore, that's why in the New Testament, Paul says that we must therefore watch ourselves. And as John the Apostle says at the end of one of his epistles, he says, flee from idolatry, little children. Flee from idolatry. Paul says we must examine ourselves, test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Now, why do we get all these apostolic exhortations to examine ourselves, test ourselves, flee from idolatry? Because apostasy is, the seeds of it are always lurking within us. Our conversion has not eradicated sin in our life. Now, the power and the dominion of sin has been broken, all right? This, the power, the dominion of sin has been broken in our lives. We are no longer in Christ enslaved to evil. We have been set free, and those who are free are free indeed. But there is a remnant of corruption that remains within us. John Calvin said this. He said, we are a factory of idols, or we might call it a, a plant today, a little industrial park of idols. And out from our heart come these little images that we would rather worship and substitute for the living God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are there things that we need to be aware of in our life? What about money? What about status? What about pleasure? Has it gripped you? Has the love of money, the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Remember Demas was, you know, one of those who, he ministered side by side with the Apostle Paul. And, and he's even, you know, Paul even says, you know, Demas greets you in one of his letters. But what do we read in the pastoral letters? That Demas has left him. By the end of Paul's ministry, Demas has left him for the world. You know, um, when I was preparing for the morning sermon um, this week, I, I was looking in the index of a, a particular theology book, a, a modern theology book um, that came out in the last several years. And I was going through the index looking for things pertaining to the sermon, and my eye came across the name of a man I knew. And that man is not in the ministry anymore. And I thought, oh, wow, here he is in the index of this huge thousand-page theology book. And he was being cited by the author of this theology book. And now he's not even in the ministry any longer. What happened? Why? The defection. We have to, Jesus said, he who loves uh, mother or father, sister or brother, even their own life, more than me is not worthy of the kingdom, he said. Jesus warns us that nobody is to supersede uh, the place of God. Spouse, family cannot take the place of the Lord in our affections. Everything must be subordinate to the Lord. What about the idol of, uh, and there are many of them, of self-righteousness, you know, Jesus warned one of his seven churches that they had a name, but in reality, it was not there. Jesus called the Pharisees of his day whitewashed tombs. They were lovely on the outside, but inwardly they were filled with dead men's bones. What about respectability or reputation, an unwillingness to endure shame or humiliation of the cross? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was crucified outside the gates, and the author of Hebrews says that we must too go outside those gates with Christ. Remember Moses 
uh, would rather suffer the reproach with Israel than to stay in the courts of Pharaoh. Idolatry has to be mortified, it has to be killed, it is to be shown uh, no quarter. Many times, Isaiah the prophet declared that God alone was God and that there was no other. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. God will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. And yet, what does Psalm 106 say about our text, Exodus 32? Psalm 106, the psalmist commenting on this very passage we're studying tonight, says this, that Israel exchanged the glory of the Lord for an ox that eats grass. They forgot their Savior, the psalmist goes on to say. So we need to recognize that we have this native and evil tendency within ourselves to rebel against God and rebel against honoring him in the prescribed manner that God desires. The people, boys and girls, to put it simply, the people of Israel, the church of the Old Testament, wanted a cow. Wanted a cow to be made that they could bow down to represent the deity. It was worse than an insult. It was blasphemy. Now, what you and I have to realize is you and I are cut from the same cloth as the children of Israel. You come from the same Adam and the same Eve. And so we must beware of human invention when it comes to the arena of worship. Innovation in most human disciplines is a commendable thing. But in worship, it is, it is not a mere human endeavor. Worship is something prescribed by the Creator and the Redeemer Himself, and it is to be unaltered in its substance. Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 21, verse 1. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself. You know, so it's not up to us. It's not just what your pastor thinks or what we think might be a good idea. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men. You may not make for yourself a golden calf. It, it, or the divine say or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture, unquote. So, that is point number one. Apostasy comes from people within. So we need to be aware of this. You know, there are various prescriptions out there as to how to deal with this cultural decline that is manifest to us all. Uh, there are even lots of non-Christians who are testifying to the cultural decline that we're experiencing. And, you know, um, some of those options look attractive. Some are calling for a strategic retreat from the culture. Uh, in order to kind of regroup, if you will. And then, as the culture falls apart, then we can strategically advance again. Um, I, I'm not here to comment so much on that in its entirety, but I'll say this. Beware uh, of that strategy in this regard of point number one. The problem is you're carrying yourself into that strategic retreat. So if you retreat from the culture, uh, 
you're just you're still bringing the problem, the possibility of the problem, with you. It doesn't solve the problem. Okay, so strategic retreat. Um, I don't think is is really the best answer. I think the Great Commission is the best answer. Number two, so apostasy. Number one, apostasy comes from people within the community or the church itself. Um, number two, apostasy is rationalized as a covering for sin here. Now, again, look at verse one. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go up before us. Now, notice here their reasoning. This is point number two here. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the people come to Aaron and they basically say, Moses is gone, he's been away for a long time, and we don't know where he is and what's happened to him. Therefore, make us a god. Make us this idol. Now, when I first had looked at this passage, I was thinking to myself, what does this have to do with the other? What does Moses not being around have to do with we need a cow? Um, and then, as I thought about it, I came to the conclusion it has nothing to do with it. That's the point. It's an excuse. The problem was I was assuming that there was some kind of rational connection between the absence of Moses and this golden calf. It was later, though, as I reflected, I realized there was really no connection here at all. I'm dealing with sin. And when people want to sin, reason is abandoned or it's employed torturously. Um, and so we see that there's a, this rationalizing uh, in order to cover for sin. So we have to be careful that we don't rationalize things in order to serve uh, sin. Number three, apostasy involves a capitulation of the leadership. Look at verses two and following. Verses two, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then the people tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. So Aaron here is caving. They come, they make a demand, and Aaron says, okay, give, give me your gold. Give me your, your rings and your earrings. So he gives the people what they want. Now that might be a successful marketing strategy in the entertainment industry, but it's a poor idea for the church. Now, what's interesting here, too, is that there's nobody opposing Aaron. And here we have to ask ourselves, not only is Aaron capitulating by way of commission, but maybe even by way of omission, where are the elders of Israel? In fact, maybe some of the elders are part of the ones who are saying, we want this golden idol. Where, where, are, the, where are the elders? You have to realize this calf, its mold, its casting could not have been done in a single day. It sounds like it happened very quickly, but we know it must have taken some time. This is a huge project. This is a huge cow they're making here, huge golden calf. And nobody, there's no evidence in the text that somebody says, hey, wait a minute, what are we doing? Now here is the significance, I think, for us. I think here in this case, the priests, the ministers, are guilty of the sin of commission. But a case also can be made that the elders of Israel are guilty of the sin of omission for not opposing the idolatry. 
And I think there's a lesson for ministers and elders alike, and I'll make an application to the congregation here in a moment. But we should learn from this. Uh, ruling elders, um, we need you to participate at, at every level of the church government and the church courts, at uh, not only the local congregation, but presbytery, general assembly. I read an interesting uh, statistic that in the year 2016, the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, the General Assembly, had over 1,300 commissioners. Now, that's a large General Assembly. 1,300 commissioners. Only le less than 300, less than 300, were ruling elders. Now, if there's any benefit to this latest controversy going on in the PCA, I suspect that one of those benefits is this. A lot of ruling elders are waking up to the fact they're about to lose their church and are going to this year's General Assembly this week in Birmingham, Alabama. So praise the Lord for that. The problem here in the text is there not only were the, the, the ordained ministers capitulating, but it seems as though by way of absence that the elders as well. I remember one time a ruling elder in our presbytery stood on the floor and he admonished us and our churches for the lack of ruling elder attendance. Now, thankfully, you have been well represented, Terry. Thank you for years. Cheryl also has been in, the, uh, in those meetings for many years, so thank you all for your, your effort. Uh, but he reminded us that the elders are not elected simply to oversee the local congregation, uh, but to participate at Presbytery, General Assembly as well. So the apostasy involves a capitulation of leadership. Also, then, fourthly, the apostasy involves a capitulation of the people at large. Look at verse 2 again in verse 3. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. So what do the people do? The people give of their substance to further the cause of idolatry and apostasy. They gave their gold for this unlawful and scandalous project. I remember many years ago, I read a story about uh, Chuck Colson. You remember Chuck Colson, who was part of the Nixon administration. He was involved at some level with Watergate, at least the cover-up of Watergate, and eventually was arrested and imprisoned, found guilty and imprisoned. And while he was in prison, he became a Christian. And he wrote a book called Born Again. And um, one of the things, though, that he testified later was now that he was a Christian, one of the things he stopped doing was he quit giving to his alma mater because his alma mater was uh, supporting things that were anti-Christian. And before he came to know the Lord, he just kind of mindless, mindlessly just gave of his substance to these institutions that were undermining now the things that were most precious to him. Our own fathers and mothers in the faith in the 20th century faced this dilemma, didn't they? What, what should they do with their tithes and their offerings when they knew that it was supporting unfaithful missionaries uh, and ministers who did not believe in 
the deity of Christ or the necessity of the new birth or the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? What were they to do? Should they keep giving and having the, the money go to these institutions? Well, Machen created the Independent Foreign Mission Board. And uh, that, of course, led to his own trial and being defrocked from the PCUSA. How many people financially support unfaithful churches or causes or institutions? Because, well, that's where my parents went. That's where my grandparents attended. You know, I had family give to the stained glass windows. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. And the hearts of the Israelites were firmly in the camp of idolatry. Number five, apostasy celebrates the idolatry. Look at verse five and six with me. Verse five and six. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So they make this giant molten calf, and he declares that there will be an assembly about this golden calf. In verse 6, so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And Paul, of course, comments on this very verse, doesn't he, in Corinthians, warning the people uh, as they were taking of the Lord's table in an unlawful manner. So the calf has been made, and now Aaron is calling for an, a, public, uh, a public assembly and a celebration of this abomination. And so now what we have is kind of full-blown idolatry. People being asked to come out and celebrate. And no doubt dissenters would be made to feel pressure to conform. Aren't you going, they would say. Aren't you going to see the golden calf? And I think the significance for us is that we have been there, haven't we? The church in the 20th century in America saw similar trends. It, it may not have been as crass as recasting gold into an idol, but it was nonetheless a, a recasting. It was a recasting of the divine image of God. Jesus was recast from being the eternal son of God who became a man to a great ethical teacher. He was stripped of all his miracles. Any claims to full divinity, being equal with God the Father, was denied him. He, he, he was not defined any longer by the Nicene Creed, being very God of very God. Jesus was reduced to a mere moralist in many of our churches last century. Later, more radical theologians came along influenced by Marxism, and they would make Jesus into a, a benign socialist, communist, a political revolutionary figure overturning the powers of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. The Son of God was now to be redefined and recast as a political title, similar to that of Caesar. So all the traditional language that the Bible uses about Jesus Christ would be recast, be melted down and shaped into something new. And you get a Jesus that no longer is the, the living Jesus Christ. All the terms would be there, resurrection, miracle, divine, God, Word of God, resurrection, but it would be devoid of any of its historical meaning or any of its biblical content. And so the, the liberal churches then would call the congregation to celebrate resurrection rather than to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. 
to celebrate that Jesus is alive, though they don't mean his bodily rising from the dead. They would celebrate the miracle of Christmas, quote-unquote, though they would deny the virgin birth. They would celebrate the giving of life, but they did not mean the Spirit of God bringing a dead sinner to regeneration by his power. They'd celebrate the Word of God, though they did not mean the inerrant and infallible Scriptures. They would mean that which became the Word of God. They would celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, though they did not mean the vicarious substitutionary atonement. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be as crass as putting some image right here on the Lord's Supper table and saying, come bow down to this image. They're melting down all the Christian terminology of the Bible and reshaping it and refashioning it and saying, here's your God, O mainline church. Here's your God. And it's not the living God at all. It's just a cow. Big fat cow. Liberal Christianity, J. Gresson Machen said, liberal Christianity melts all, down all the truths of the Bible, reshapes them into some horrid image, so that it's an entirely, Machen said, it's an entirely different religion. It's not even Christianity anymore. It's not just another version of Christianity. It is not Christianity at all, any more than this golden cow represents Christ. I mean, Aaron tried to call the cow the Lord. He, he, notice, he, he, he says this is the Lord. Remember, this, this is not principally a violation of the first commandment. They're not jettisoning the idea of Yahweh, of Jehovah. They're saying this is Jehovah. This is, this is the one who split the Red Sea. This gold cow is Jehovah. They're not, they're not you know, they, they, they would argue, well, we're, we're not denying the Lord. We're still calling upon the name of the Lord. So apostasy is celebrated uh, by uh, idolatry. And then finally, as often happens, apostasy does not stop at theology proper. It then is followed and accompanied by immorality. Apostasy is accompanied by a gradual or even sudden overthrow of God's moral law in the second table. The undermining of the first table of the law, that is how we relate to God, you shall have no other gods, you shall not make a graven image, you shall not take his name in vain, remember the Sabbath day, all of that relates to how we relate to God. The latter six commandments are about how we relate to one another. Look with me in your Bible here at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the Apostle Paul comments on this section that we're studying in Exodus 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and starting at verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. Now, he's talking, he's writing to a New Testament church here in Corinth people who have been converted to Christ, brought out of idolatry. And what does he say to them? I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about Israel here coming through the Red Sea and being fed by the manna <coughs> and also drinking from the water from the rock. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, he says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now look at verse 6. Here's application for us. He said, now these things happened, what? As examples for us. As examples for the New Testament church. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. In verse 7, he exhorts them, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down, and he's quoting here from our text, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Then look at verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. Notice here he's giving us even some more insight into this text that immorality uh, followed the golden calf. This dancing here I think was probably very lurid dancing. This was not you know, some kind of uh, ballet performance. This was not here square dancing. This, this, was, this was something uh, sexually provocative. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will, allow, excuse me, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And he goes on. So he's saying here, look, this whole golden calf episode is an example for us, a negative example for the church, to beware of idolatry and to flee from idolatry, to examine ourselves and also to look to the God of grace to escape temptation. <coughs> Today, in the fifth commandment, there is no shortage of dishonoring of parents or teachers or pastors or church elders or police or councilmen or mayors or representatives, senators, governors, judges, or presidents. In the sixth commandment, it says, thou shalt not murder. That includes Jesus told us hatred. Idolatry leads to the love waxing cold. The enemies of a man become the people of his own home, Jesus told his audience regarding the fall of Jerusalem. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet we see that there is promiscuity in our culture before marriage, infidelity during marriage. There's homosexuality outside of marriage. And that led to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Idolatry is dangerous, and it does not end in and of itself. But it always leads to a decline in morals. As again, I leave you as I started with Dr. Morrison. Religious instruction is not only important, but indispensable in education. The Bible must be supreme in the seats of learning. 
And I would go on to say not only in the seats of learning, but in the seat of government, in the seat of our churches and sessions, in the seat of our homes, in the seat of our marriages. The Bible has to be supreme. Education without these moral principles gives us only the intelligence to do evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, do pray, O oh God, keep us, we ask. Help us, O oh Lord. We are weak. 